Hello, my name is Will and you're listening to Exploding Helicopter, the only podcast in the world dedicated to celebrating helicopter explosions in film. Now the trouble with a lot of superheroes is that once they hang up their cape, they're as dull as ditch water. Clark Kent is a socially inept wet blanket, Bruce Wayne a reclusive misery guts, and Peter Parker a dweeby geek. So after many po-faced excursions into the comic book universe, the Iron Man series was like a breath of fresh air. Its hero was a suave, sardonic, millionaire playboy armed with enough one-liners to fill a telephone directory. So on this show we're looking at 2013's Iron Man 3. To help me look at the film, I'm joined by a man who survived falling through a wormhole. Fresh from rebuilding himself in an Afghan cave, it's Ben Dads from Top Film Tip. Welcome to the show, Ben. Hi, thanks for coming me on. Do you want to uh, take a moment to uh, plug Top Film Tip? Absolutely, thanks, Will. Top Film Tip is a Twitter account where I tip the best films that are on TV. We have lots of followers, not just in the UK, and I generally put in a little snappy synopsis. For instance, Iron Man 3 would be tipped as PTSD piano pitching poncho pincher fight sinister cynical suit slicer quick quipping character developing Marvel Iron Man 3. You should have shared that summary with me earlier. You would have saved me uh, writing up my own one. But uh, anyway, we, uh, we, we won't worry about that now. Before we tackle Iron Man 3, I always like to check in with people and find out about anything interesting they've seen lately. So what do you want to tell us about them? I saw a fantastic film from New Zealand called The Deadlands, all about a Maori tribe. One Maori boy is left after his tribe is wiped out by another Maori clan, um, and he has to go and get help from uh, Maori, who's generally considered a monster. He's almost uh, like a predator character, and he sets off to the Deadlands to try and orchestrate vengeance upon them to, for his for his ancestors' sake. It's kind of like a cross between Predator and the Warriors if Predator and the Warriors was filmed entirely in Maori language and they had stone axes and ate each other. I'm really struggling with that kind of combination of reference points. <laughs> the Predator it's meets a fun the... film, Will. <laughs> the Predator meets the Warriors with stone weapons. Yeah, and they're cannibals. And they're cannibals. Okay, right. Well, maybe I'll go and check it out because uh, I think I'm in the mood for a bit of human meat eating, I think. Okay, thanks, Ben. Let's get stuck into uh, Iron Man 3. Jarvis, play the trailer. I'm Tony Stark. I build neat stuff. I got a great girl. And occasionally, save the world. So why can't I sleep? You elected me on a single platform. I will defend this country at all costs. The Mandarin must be stopped. You don't know who I am. Life. 
Iron Man 3 came out in 2013, and it builds on the story of the two previous entries in the series, but also incorporates the events of the first Avengers movie. So here we find a traumatised Tony Stark holed up in his home, endlessly tinkering with his Iron Man suits. But the real world intrudes when one of his friends is badly injured in a bomb attack by a mysterious Osama Bin Laden-like figure called the Mandarin. But when Stark investigates, he discovers that the Mad Muller might not be the real power behind the attacks. Iron Man 3 was written and directed by Shane Black. It uh, has uh, some of the familiar faces from the series back again here. So we have Gwyneth Paltrow and Don Cheadle, along with Guy Pearce as the sinister scientist Killian, and Ben Kingsley as the Mandarin. Ben, what did you make of Iron Man 3 overall? Overall, I think it was a, it was a, a really fantastic film. It, I largely enjoyed it. Um, I just had one or two little issues uh, and maybe one big issue. What were your kind of uh, minor issues? And uh, and also, why don't you tell us what the big one was as well? I think the film held together very, very well, all the way up to the point where um, there's the barrel of monkeys scene and um, Iron Man, as it seems, is, is collecting all the people falling out of the plane, at which point it culminates when the suit's destroyed by a, a truck and you realise it was empty all along. And this, to me, it, it kind of took all the excitement out of the film and whilst it's fairly obvious that there's um he's never really in the suit it's all cgi when you don't think the man is in the suit it's just a suit there's no peril there's no excitement there's no danger and then that then gets kind of amplified towards the end where these seemingly indestructible billion dollar 10 billion dollar suits are just exploding like fireworks all over the place and just getting chopped apart and pulled to bits and it, it just kind of almost um destroys the mythos of the the iron man as a as a hero when it's it's a bunch of empty suits well i have a similar sorts of thoughts to yourself i found this very entertaining it's pretty breezy fair to watch so it, it kind of slips down very uh, easily and the film it bounces along with a lot of witty dialogue and for the most part there are some really good action sort of sequences in here and also there was another element of this film that i really liked which was actually for one of these superhero movies there's actually sort of quite a lot of character in here it's not just sort of set piece after set piece with a few sort of wonky lines of dialogue in between my trouble though with this film is that whilst there is that sort of character element here of of tony stark in here i'm not actually sure i like tony stark that much and he he he's just you know he's He's, he's, you know, he's very rich. He's just endlessly sort of quipping away. And he's just, I don't know, I find him a bit... I think if I met him in real life, I think I'd find him, frankly, quite irritating. I think he's not very relatable, but he's a self-made man. You know, he believes his own hype because he is as good as people say he is. And I think that goes a long way to kind of bridge that gap between um, being a sort of uh, unrelatable, arrogant billionaire to a kind of lovable rogue. I mean, the film, I think, is aware of that sort of problem or that danger of, of uh, how this character may be portrayed. So there are, you do see in the film sort of elements where his uh, cockiness is, is punctured. So there are moments where he thinks he's pulled something off and then um, it sort of turns out his you know equipment lets him down and he's not quite as smart as perhaps he uh, thinks he is. 
but uh, I, I, I sort of those felt sort of like sort of tokenistic gestures to me and I think overall I wouldn't say that I'm the biggest Tony Stark fan uh, I think part of that is just you know my general preference I think I, I prefer probably the uh, strong silent heroes as opposed to the uh, endlessly wisecracking uh, wise asses uh, that we get here you're more of a Captain America man, Will. I think I may be. For good or ill, I may be more of a Captain America fan. But I wanted to talk about a couple of elements of the plot here, which I found quite interesting. And we find sort of Tony Stark in this film suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of his experience in the Avengers movie. And in most superhero movies, we're just sort of used to seeing the characters overcome their challenges without any sort of long-term consequences. And I thought that that was a good idea, but I've got kind of mixed opinions on how well this was exploited here. But what was your view? As I say, I had I had the issue with uh, with the destroying the idea of Iron Man towards the end of the film. But before that, for the bulk of the film, I think it was a, a really nice insight um, and a really nice development of um, in a genre that, as you say, normally they have a fight in the next scene, everything's fine. In this one, he has you know an apocalyptic experience, and it really does shake him to his soul with uh, you know uh, with lasting effects. And I think they they ride with that very well. They do some um, some interesting character development off the back of it, and I, th- I think it works. I mean, for me, uh, you know, I think there's some interesting sort of stuff here in the sense that the PTSD gives his character an element of vulnerability and sort of going back to the sort of the arrogance of the of the or confidence of the Tony Stark character. I think that that creates a sort of interesting sort of dynamic for that character. He, you know, you have somebody who is super confident uh, on the surface, but here he's actually sort of suffering this trauma which you know makes his character a bit more sort of vulnerable uh, so i thought that that was an interesting sort of element but there were times in the film which i thought they didn't quite exploit that as much as they could do so there's a scene where tony stark is having a sort of nightmare and because of his nightmare one of his iron man suits comes in and starts to threaten sort of gwyneth paltrow whilst she's in bed asleep next to him and I was expecting a really sort of big scene there where Paltrow would really sound off on, you know, Tony Stark. You know, here she here she is nearly killed in her sleep because of him and his issues that he's not sort of confronting and dealing with. And all she does in that scene is just go to sleep downstairs. And I just thought that that was a real interesting idea, but they just sort of didn't really bother developing it. Well, I think Marvel are perhaps a, a little bit notorious for not not giving their ladies much to do. Unfortunately, I think that's another case. The, the, another opportunity I think they missed was obviously at the end of the film, she ends up with the extremist superpowers and Tony Stark, I think by his own admission, gets gets her sorted out and there's a little scene of her in surgery. And I thought, well, why why is she not going to join his super friends outfit and get with the Avengers? Well, and I think Gwyneth Paltrow does suffer quite a bit from that in this film. She, you know, scarcely in much of this film and her function, certainly at the end of the film, is, uh, you know, reminded me of those kind of like old silent films where the damsel in distress is tied to the the line, the train track lines and, you know, whilst the steam train comes hurtling towards her. That seemed to be largely her function um, at the the very end of this film until she, you know, uses these uh, abilities that she sort of temporarily has to save the day. But that really just felt like, oh, my goodness, we've got Gwyneth Paltrow. You better kind of give her at least, you know, 30 seconds of 
screen time and action and some actual sort of have her actually sort of contribute something sort of decent to the plot. I think that's fair enough. I think we're, we're focusing on the negative things here. I think on the whole, this this was a, a, a tricky film to make. It's the first film after the Avengers, and they had to kind of match that scale of film, but with um, with fewer characters. And there's a there's a lot of interesting script. There's a lot of interesting quips. I don't think perhaps you uh, you enjoyed his um, his one liners as much as I did. But there's, you know, there are some fantastic set pieces. The character develops well, and obviously we we haven't talked about Ben Kingsley yet. Well, I'm sure we'll come on to him uh, a little bit later. But another, I wanted to pick the bones over another aspect of the plot, which I found quite interesting. And it's one that sort of cropped up in previous Iron Man and MCU films, which is this sort of idea that the sort of biggest threat to sort of global security, or at least America's security, is actually America itself. And in Iron Man 3, you have industrialists and politicians conspiring together. Uh, you know, and I I wondered what you thought that this sort of tells us about sort of current times that we're living in. I found that really interesting. And my my problem with that is more of a personal thing. Is I really hate conspiracy theories. I, I don't have time for conspiracy theorists. You know, the the, the government, like, our government certainly just, you know, leave their laptops on trains and, you know, they, they can't cover up their own expenses. <laughs> so, so the idea that they could orchestrate something of this scale, then keep all the information on a server that's easily hacked with a password, incidentally, that's uttered in front of terrorists. And it just gets my back up a bit. I also, if, if they brought in the Hydra element from the other Marvel films that there was uh, that the vice president was actually a Hydra agent ready to take power. I could kind of believe it. But the idea that the vice president would just allow his entire or be complicit with his entire staff and the, the president being completely uh, obliterated in a, in a horrible way just so he could rise to power and his granddaughter could get a new foot doesn't really seem believable. Although saying that doesn't really seem believable with reference to a Marvel film. It's a bit dark, really, isn't it? Yeah, that's something that you sort of need to kind of, I think, check yourself with in the sense that this is a film full of fantastical uh, scenes and fantastical sort of elements. So you have to, I think, suspend your disbelief to a certain extent. But I think what I would agree with you there is that that certainly the vice president aspect of this plot was so thinly sketched that you, I think you know are sort of i think it's legitimate to sort of uh, query it and question it's you know how well that was done in the film and and you know it, i think it did sort of leave uh, sort of for me sort of question marks about just exactly what the plan and what exactly the plot was here because uh, i mean i don't know about you i i was not really sort of clear really what guy pierce in, in this role of killian what his actual plan was i mean he's my my, under, my understanding of that one was that um he was he was trying to control as in his, by his own words supply and demand in the war on terror he, he was going to try and supply the terror and then supply the uh the you know the high-end equipment to deal with that and make a lot of money and the vice president would rise to power so it's kind of win-win as far as they're concerned but i wonder if it's an easier pill for an audience to swallow when they go for a bit of escapism to kind of uh, point the finger inwards rather than um kind of talk about the the fears and the worries of what might be coming from the outside for me i think that you know the reason why sort of it these films seem to be sort of focusing on the enemy within is i think it's still a sort of hangover from the end of the cold war in the sense that you can't you know who are these 
states or countries that would actually sort of be uh, an outward um, threat to uh, America. And I also think that it's actually the marketing departments of these studios as much as anything, whereby why queer the pitch with an international market? I cannot imagine that we are going to see a big budget um, sort of action movie where China is portrayed as a you know as the villain of the piece because that is such a big movie market now that I just think that you know studios are sort of bending over the, over backwards to make their movies popular there so I think the chances of us sort of seeing a film which is critical of China certainly at the sort of blockbuster big budget end of the scale of things uh, we're just not going to see those type of films I believe, actually, on that subject, I think um, World War Z had a bit of rewriting or re-editing along those lines. I think in the book, the plague begins in China, but doesn't in the film for that reason. Yeah, because I think in the film, it is South Korea, I think, if I remember off the top of my head. So, uh, they obviously, yeah, obviously that's a much, much smaller market. They don't mind, they don't mind uh, losing out on the, uh, on the dollars from, uh, from there. So talking of villains of the piece in this film, uh, we have uh, Ben Kingsley uh, as the Mandarin. I know from our sort of uh, conversations uh, before we were sort of doing this film that you really enjoyed that character and uh, Ben Kingsley in that role. I think he was absolutely fantastic on a number of levels. The, the character, the acting, the delivery, he, to my mind and to my memory, I think he is the best red herring in any mainstream film that I can bring to mind. There may well be smaller films I, I can't think of, but the it works so well because you are fed this this idea. All the advertising, all the posters, the trailer within the film itself. Even Tony's after him and doesn't realise until he's he's on top of him talking to him that he is not who he says he is. Um, and when when that reveal comes that he's is it Tony Slattery? It is, um, yeah. Tony Slattery from uh, Croydon, who was the, the, the toast of Croydon for his for his Lear, and it was just a sort of like wayward uh, wayward rent boy with a substance abuse problem who was offered more drugs. Uh, it's just fantastic. It, I, I understand some of the fanboys didn't like the uh, the treatment of one of their beloved um, villains, but as someone who's who's not too au fait with the Marvel comics, that absolutely killed me. I loved it, and on repeat viewings, his performance really stands up. I'm in complete agreement with you. I, I thought he gives a, a, a really great comic turn in the, in this film, and I think that that probably is what uh, what sort of sold Ben Kingsley on the part was that he realised he could uh, have have some fun with this, and it would be a it would probably be the uh, small role in the film, but it would be the most sort of flamboyant and uh, characterful one in this movie, and. I think it's quite interesting, sort of like going back and watch it once you know that twist, going back and watching the film, because it's actually uh, very well played in the film to actually sort of support the idea that he is the the mastermind of this sort of entire plot. But then when you know the twist, you can look back on those elements and see them in a slightly different way. So they're really just sort of pandering to him as uh, as an actor rather you know as an arrogant and cocky actor rather than as a sort of big evil mastermind so yeah it was a really enjoyable um, sort of turn and in terms of red herrings that are comparable the only one I could think of I don't know if it would if it's quite the same would be would be Kevin Spacey's character in The Usual Suspects I don't know if that would qualify 
I think that would be more of an overall plot twist than, than a kind of a, a red herring along the way. And, and what I loved about this is, uh, I think as you pointed out, is anyone else who had that idea, that, that would be the entire third act. That, that would be the crux of the film, you know, and, and in this, it's just, just right in the middle. It can, you know, he, he's got all the stress, all the PTSD, as you say, all these issues. And then there's this, just this massive, just wonderful, um, explosion of humor right in the middle of the film. And I think also it, it gives an enormous credit to, um, Ben Kingsley himself for, for being able to deliver such range within the same role. Yeah, because he has to um, sort of spin on a sixpence to go from the, you know, stern, threatening, sort of Osama Bin Laden-like figure to this sort of, as you say, drunk actor from Croydon who uh, is only really sort of interested in the drugs and the women. <laughs> I think he even offers uh, one of the women to Tony at one point. <laughs> <laughs> Both Tony and the women just aren't really impressed. Well, if I think if they got him on another day, he may have uh, he may have gone along with it. But uh, he he was uh, he was thinking of his country and his nation at that point. But one of the issues with sequels is having to sort of find new things to do with the character um, who that you're already sort of familiar with and to show new and interesting ways for them to demonstrate their abilities. And, you know, I wondered, you know, how well you thought that that was done in this film. I think you've already sort of touched on some problems that you uh, had with ways in which they were sort of trying to do that here I think yeah I think if anything they actually took a bit of a step back and not wanting to be too negative the, the one thing that kind of bugs me a bit was uh, in, in the first film he's um, he's trapped in a cave I don't think it's actually Afghanistan but I think that's the idea he's you know he's got shrapnel around his heart he's you know in a terrible state and he makes this flying exoskeletal mecha suit and he just kicks ass and you know, it leads on to his whole next revolution. And he does it from like odds and ends in, in, in a cave. And in this one, he makes like an electric glove and um, some exploding Christmas decorations. <laughs> and, and that, you know, the, the idea is that he's the, he's the, by his own admission, he's the mechanic, you know, he's the innovator. And he does spend a lot of time charming people and, and, um, and doing his one liners rather than coming up with wholly new ideas. And I think his, as I say, once they take the man out of the suit as well, and those suits then don't seem so indestructible, they, they're just getting knocked about and torn to bits. It kind of, for me, it just kind of destroyed the mythos of the, of, of the idea of Iron Man t- towards the end of the film. But for 80% of the film, it was great fun. It felt to me a little bit with the that sort of mid section of the film where you've got Tony Stark in that kid's garage and he's sort of trying to fix his Iron Man suit and he comes up with that that glove. Felt to me a bit like they were trying to uh, repeat the beats of of certainly of that sort of first Iron Man film and I think that this is one of the you know one of the kind of like problems with the sequels is that uh, it's trying to give you the same thing again but in a slightly different sort of way and uh, I actually sort of enjoyed that section of the film even though I was thinking this does seem a little bit familiar and you know I touching on some of the stuff we've we've talked about before you know I think at that moment in the film he is you know he's outside of the suit so he's vulnerable in a way in which which makes his character vulnerable and I think superhero you know that I have a problem with sort of superhero movies in the sense that very often seemingly sort of impossible to hurt impossible to harm so where is the there's no jeopardy for you as a viewer watching them just bounce uninjured through action set piece after action set piece so I actually thought that part of the film worked 
quite really well for me because here he was basically having to survive on his own sort of wit and skills and the whole fight sequence in the in the bar in the street and then in some sort of like cafe diner i thought that that for me was one of the sort of uh, parts of the film that i actually enjoyed the most yeah i'd agree and and i think he does use a his nous a little bit in those in those fight scenes starting the fire and uh, and and tricking the the character the oh, I forget the chap's name but one one of the extremist characters in that fight scene I also think the the camaraderie he has with that little boy is is tremendously enjoyable there's some great back and forth there yeah it was interesting sort of rewatching this film for the for this show because I remember not liking that part of the film that dynamic between him and the young boy it just felt a little bit sort of contrived by perhaps I'm becoming a bit of a, a softy or something because I actually found the dynamic between them uh, much more enjoyable on that on this rewatch so perhaps I'm uh, you know God, I, I, perhaps I'm on the way to becoming a fully fledged uh, Iron Man Marvel fan <laughs> who knows well you're gonna you're gonna have Civil War soon and there's talk of Iron Man 4 in 2020 Going back to Iron Man 3, this was the sort of first film in uh, phase two of Marvel's grand plan to create a shared cinematic world or universe for their characters. How well did that work for you here? I think it fits in quite well, Will. The, it, the, the story's not so big as to call for the likes of, uh, of Thor. It's a little bit more personal to, to Tony Stark, so perhaps not to call on Captain America and it is more based around uh, the, the character development it, it does fit in as I said I think one little throwaway line with the vice president towards the end of the film where he, he just perhaps said hail Hydra to his bodyguard could have really solved the um, the issues with the conspiracy theory and and brought brought things in a little bit tighter it, it was good it was enjoyable I think Captain America Winter Soldier was better well, I kind of completely agree with you. I thought Winter Soldier was a much better um, example of how they are, how Marvel is sort of trying to build films which um, interlock together in ways which uh, help tell a richer story. I think Iron Man Three really works as, uh, you know, as a standalone film, and, and there are very few, if any, sorts of, you know, a bar. The PTSD plot, which is obviously something from the Avengers movie, there was really very little it shared or contributed or, you know, made richer that sort of uh, idea of a wider sort of uh, universe. And, you know, it was in, you know, I think we both agree that sort of Winter Soldier does it really well. And there's very little of it here in, in Iron Man 3. And uh, I don't know what your view is, but when I saw um, Avengers Age of Ultron, I felt that actually Marvel were sort of in danger of of not being able to take the casual sort of fan along with them because in that film I felt you know and I'm not a big uh, Marvel fan I haven't seen all of the movies in there I felt a little bit lost about the relationships between characters there were a lot of details in that film that for me left me at a bit of a loss and I think harmed my sort of enjoyment of that film I think you've perhaps hit on the crux of it I, I think Iron Man 3 fits very well in the marvel universe but doesn't expand on it in and of itself okay we're going to take a short break and when we come back we're going to be talking about the exploding helicopter action so this thing we want to do what exactly is it i think it's a podcast i think he just made that word up well anyway what would it be about 
uh, it can be about those things we see in the things you know with the pictures and the acting and sometimes Ryan Gosling oh you mean films yeah those we can talk about those and Ryan Gosling and what would we call it women who speak weirdly uh, ladies young ladies all the single ladies <laughs> oh wait I know oh, chicks with accents yeah and we could use that song from the Beatles and that movie across the universe cool yeah listen to the across the universe podcast brought to you by the chicks with accents available just about everywhere we're back and now we're looking at the exploding helicopter action this takes place after stark misguidedly goads the mandarin into attacking him personally after his friend is injured in one of his terrorist bombings the bearded baddie is only too happy to oblige, sending a trio of heavily laden attack choppers to Stark's hillside hideaway. The helicopters fire off multiple missiles, forcing Stark to defend himself with a malfunctioning Iron Man suit. Our hero comes up with a quick piece of improvisation, throwing an explosive charge at a chopper hovering close by. He then detonates the charge with a quick blast from the jet on his glove. The wounded whirlybird spirals from the sky into Stark's mansion, where it promptly redesigns the interior through the medium of a massive explosion. Ben, what did you make of the chopper fireball action here? I really enjoyed it, but before we get to that, Will, I just have to say that was an awesome amount of alliteration you, you uh, managed to squeeze <laughs> in, and I, I wholly approve. Well done. It, it was tremendous fun. I remember seeing this the first time, and it really does kind of come out of nowhere when you're not expecting it. My only concern on the rewatch was I, I misremembered the piano actually causing the helicopter explosion but in the on the rewatch what i realize is the piano which is is by far the most fun moment of that scene merely just knocks the whole helicopter out of the sky which is which is still pretty impressive yeah if you're um, struggling to sort of remember the sort of exact details of that sequence sort of prior to the uh, chopper fireball explosion that i've just sort of described uh, tony stark is sort of looking for things that he can use to try and fight off these helicopters and he uh, finds a, a grand piano sliding by him and he uh, throws it or blasts it out at one of the uh, helicopters and it strikes the helicopter which damages it and it sort of disappears out of shot but sadly we don't see what happens to that helicopter so we don't know if it ultimately explodes and uh, i'm with you ben i think if that helicopter had exploded after being struck by a grand, you know, by a flying grand piano, I think we'd be talking about one of the greatest exploding helicopter scenes of all time. And I think it's a real missed opportunity by Shane Black and all concerned in this film that they didn't exploit that particular opportunity more. It would have been wonderful if he had uh, if he had engineered his piano with his Iron Man technology and it, it somehow flew out and, and self-destructed with with some more explosive force. It was good fun. I did enjoy that. It, thankfully, as you mentioned, um, another helicopter is around uh, to get exploded. <laughs> I think we've, we've discussed in the past the, the, the exploding heli- the idea of an exploding helicopter index in which how many steps it takes from initiation to explosion. In, in this one, he obviously uh, his uh, mechanics won't fire the bullet or the explosive, the shell. He pulls it out. He throws it. So, you know, you've got you've got two there and then he sends his blast, which then explodes the shell and then knocks the helicopter out. So that's that's probably a good four on the exploding helicopter index for me. Do you think there should be a maximum number of uh, sort of steps on that index? Does there need to be sort of, uh, you know, like a certain number and then, yep, that's good. And then after after a certain number, that's like, OK, that's too many steps. You're losing me there as the audience. 
No, um, as an exploding helicopter fan and, and listening to your podcast, will you know the the um, the more convoluted the better. Absolutely. Every time I see a helicopter in a film now, I'm expecting it to explode, and if it doesn't, I'm disappointed, and I'm asking myself, what was the point of that helicopter? It didn't even explode. <laughs> That is a question I ask myself on a daily, if not minute by minute basis. I don't know if there's there's scope. There's another film called Big Game, which is unintentionally hilarious, uh, where Samuel L. Jackson plays a president and he's he's lost in Scandinavia and he befriends a little boy. There is an astonishing convoluted sequence to from from initiation to helicopter explosion in that film. And I don't want to ruin it for you, but that is something special. Where would that rank on uh, this index? Probably around a 12. Wow. It involves a bow and arrow, Will. Okay. I don't, I'm not looking forward to trying to summarise that explosion in a future podcast if it's uh, that complicated. But, uh, you know, you've whetted my appetite, so I'm probably going to have to give it a go. Excellent. Okay. I think that just about wraps things up for this show. Ben, thanks again for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Will. Don't forget to check out the Exploding Helicopter website, Twitter, Facebook. We're in all those places. We'll be back soon. But until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.